Hey everyone, welcome to Danny Chats. This is episode 36 and I'm really excited today to be joined by Eliza. Uh, some of you may know Eliza, she has her own podcast and uh, the reason she's joining me today is she's going to talk about her heart transplant. Um, and I've been following Eliza on Instagram from I think 2020 when you started your podcast up. But uh, I don't know too much before then what was happening. So how did you come in? Well, hello, first of all. And how did you come into needing your heart transplant? Thanks for having me. Um, how did I come to need my transplant? Good question. Um, so it was genetic, um, but they didn't find out that I had a condition until I was 12 years old. So I had like a pretty normal childhood. Um, and it was actually in uh, the swine flu uh, epidemic, pandemic, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and it was Christmas 2010. And I caught it, or they thought I caught it. Um, so I was taken to hospital. I got really ill with it. And it got to Christmas Eve and um, I was really struggling to breathe. So they gave me like a mask and gave me um, salbutamol through, mask, through the mask. Um, and obviously, at this point, my heart was a bit different to a normal person's heart. They didn't know that. Um, they were giving me this gas that was making my heart go faster. Um, and then I had a respiratory arrest. So off I toodled to ICU. Uh, not technically toodling. I was definitely out of it. Um, but yeah, I crashed. I went to ICU. Um, and that's when they found out I had had an irregular shaped heart um, and then I was sent off to Bristol Children's Hospital um, where I guess everything really started um, where my uh, consultant cardiologist said to my parents do you want the good news or the bad news and the good news was that I would uh, need a heart transplant one day but uh, no is that the bad news or the good news? <laughs> Uh, the good news was I would live. Yeah. The bad news was I'd need a transplant one day. Um, but no one told me this until a few years later. So I was still out out of it on that front. I just thought I had a heart condition right. and I'd be able to live life normally. Um, was that the first time you was in hospital as well? Mm. I mean, apart from... Like, yeah, pretty much like maybe a GP appointment here or there but apart from that like I'd never been in a hospital like maybe I'd visited someone in hospital but that was the closest thing I'd been to being in a hospital let alone on a uh, like life-saving like breathing machine and things very very um, true. say that again sorry very traumatic yeah um it was yeah it was really quite traumatic obviously it's like a really big shock as a 12 year old a 12 year old to go from being you know completely normal like living a really normal life being really quite active to all of a sudden being an ill child being wrapped up in cotton wool um not being allowed to do things like everyone else like i lost a ton of weight so i was super skinny and like everyone would call me like a little sparrow it really annoyed me yeah um yeah it was like a just completely like a massive u-turn in my life at such a like prominent part of my life like going from childhood to teenage years and so i think that was just quite a lot of confusion and like 
yeah, it was just a weird time for that thing to happen, I suppose. That's the sort of time where you start your secondary school and everything like that, isn't it? And yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I was in year eight at the time. So I'd been at school for a couple like two years. Yeah. Um, and I lost I lost a lot of time in education. I was pretty much out of school for like a year. Um and because of I didn't in the end I didn't have swine flu I had a few different streps of uh flu um and I don't know what it was if it was that the pneumonia I had and the um you know the life 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 support machine I got really bad damn really bad damaged lungs so for a couple of like for about a year after that first episode I'd have to go into hospital every two months for two weeks of antibiotics uh, through IV um, because I my lungs were that damaged and I kept getting like bugs and stuff in my lungs. Um, so I was pretty much treated like a CF patient at that point as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just a completely different way of life. And I, it's almost like I completely denied it even whilst I was in hospital, I just almost, just in, enjoy watching films and eating food. And I just not really take into consideration that like, I've got this massive needle in my arm giving me loads of like, antibiotics. And, you know, I wasn't really thinking about that. I was just thinking, oh, time off school sort of thing. I think yeah. that might, might, might be a coping mechanism as well. And then we process stuff after, because I certainly felt that with my transplant. Like I didn't really think, think too much about it at the time because I knew I just had to get through it. And then mm. after, when everything sort of started to hit me of uh, mm. what really happened and stuff like that. Mm. When did you start getting like health issues with your with your liver? Uh, I was 14, so okay. I was 10, so I missed my GCSEs pretty much. Oh God. Uh, yeah, so it's the same sort of thing, you know, you're at that age where you, you don't want to be different in school and then all of a sudden you're out of school for so long and then you're going mm. back and you're known as like the sick kid. <laughs> yeah yeah it was a hard time but for me after that i went off to college so it was kind of time for me to start again um mm. which was nice mm. so they they told your parents you need you would need a heart transplant sometime but you weren't made aware of this for a little while no i wasn't made aware i to be honest i haven't really had that conversation of like why wasn't i made aware i guess it's one of those things parents decide on your behalf until you're 16 it was literally when I turned 16 and it's that changeover from children's hospital to adult hospital that I was then really abruptly told that I would need a transplant, which was quite a shock. Yeah. Um, and I thought my life was over sort of thing. Um, and then I got a, like a, a, a letter in the post afterwards, you know, like your after appointment letter. Yeah. And it was like, we did discuss Eliza needing a transplant one day, but this may or may not happen. Like, they were <laughs> my consultants trying to be like a bit nicer and a bit softer about the situation. Because I just like burst into tears in front of him. Because, um, you know, like when you're a kid and you're going to these appointments and, you know, the doctor's just da 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 like, like numbers, numbers, da 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 And then... And then they say something like, yo, you're gonna need a transplant. And all of a sudden your like brain is like like, like five seconds late. Yeah. And then it's just like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And it becomes real, doesn't it? It's like, oh, yeah. that's big. Yeah, yeah. How did you find it? It's nothing I've 
talked about actually is how did you find the transition from children's hospital to adult hospital as well because it's very different on the wall there yeah um I suppose I didn't I didn't spend too much time in the kids hospitals um only the the first time I got really ill um and then I had a pacemaker put in and that was at Easter and they tried to do an ablation ablation and it went horribly wrong and my heart went all funny so I couldn't move for like a week whilst like over the Easter period because no one was at work (laughs) so I was like stuck in my bed um but you know everyone was really nice there I think everyone's a bit like maybe a bit more caring uh, a bit more considerate um but I was really lucky that my uh, cardiac consultant uh, actually was still my adult consultant because um, he worked in both the kids and uh, adult hospital. Um, so I was really lucky with that. So I still had that same person and I'd had that connection um, and that trust that I'd built up. Um, and it was almost like seeing seeing like an uncle a little bit where you could have like a bit of a joke and, you know, I could roll my eyes and like he'd say, oh, you probably need this soon and I'd just give them the evil sort of thing um <laughs> so that was nice that I could continue that into adult um adult into the adult hospital that um, to have someone that completely knows you as well so if you say you're feeling off then they know that you're feeling off if you know and like I mean I cannot fault Bristol Heart Institute like there were points where I really needed attention and we could just call them up and they'd say come up tomorrow like it was I mean we're in Cornwall we used to be in Devon um so it was quite a long journey up but literally like at a drop of the hat we could go up and have an appointment um and I think that's really important to having a team when you're you know your condition is so uh, up and down and uncertain um so to have that trust and that communication i think communication is a massive thing with your team and being your own advocate and being able to shout out shout shout up and shout out and to not let them like say oh you know you're fine you know your stats seem okay like just like maybe you're overthinking it it's like no like i don't feel well yeah. um and I think that's, yeah, I think that's the thing you learn going into the adult hospital is you really do have to shout up because there's so many people needing to be seen and so many people like wanting that extra help. So you actually have to like fight your side. Yeah, really, really good point. Really good point. Mm. It, it is sometimes like that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, I do need that extra medication. Yes, I am in pain. Yeah, or I do need those extra diuretics, like pre-transplant when you're like high up with fluid and your your ankles are like just bulging yeah. out and you're like, I need more diuretics, give them to me. Yeah, one of my friends just kept on calling me cankles for ages. I'm <laughs> like my best mate, so we get on, it's fine. And then he was just saying, like, he was just winding me up. He said, I'll get you a mobility scooter if you want one. Yeah. It's just like, honestly, I... So I had the ankles was one of the worst things pre-transplant because like the rest of me was so slim and then just like had these old lady ankles. Yeah. <laughs> it's like awful. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you had a pacemaker. How did you find that? Um, I think I had a pretty pretty good experience with having my pacemaker. Um, I had two in total. I had one when I was 14, 
um, for like maybe a year before I had been having a few more heart episodes like when I was like at uh, dance school I'd get these like funny heart rhythms that would just be like that for like five minutes um so they decided to give me a pacemaker um I'd never had any uh electric shocks but I know people who have um so I'm really lucky on that front but um I don't know if it's a pacemaker or deep like there's one that's like both yeah and so I was paced a lot um so there'd be points where I would go in and they see that my uh heart was struggling when I was going uphill so then they'd put the they changed the um like the computer to tell it to uh help my heart when I'm going up a hill um and things like that and whenever when it got to the point where I was like maybe 18 19 and I was maybe have like a drink like an alcoholic drink not a lot but maybe one every few months yeah, yeah, and yeah. I'd go in for my checkup and they would literally be like what were you doing on the 26th of June at five o'clock and I'm like um <laughs> 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 I drank some alcohol <laughs> so they'd have a graph or something or a chart and it would monitor yeah so they would have this like um so I'd be on like you know one of those beds they yeah. you know the hospital beds and then they would have like a box that would open and it was like a screen and it would have like lots of buttons. And then they'd have this like, this like hoop thing and they'd put it on your, on your pacemaker. Right. And so then the hoop would like Wi-Fi no the information onto the box. That's insane. Yeah. And so it would be like a bit of an echo, echo, echogram, whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, so it would come up with like all the heart, all my beats for like the last six months. That's bad. Um, yeah, yeah. And then I also had like a box at home, which linked up to my pacemaker, which would send them the data of my heart like every day or so they could check up on me from home. Yeah. That's really good though. Because only really, I've talked to people with heart transplants before, but it's only just occurred to me how you know your heart is the, the one thing that really keeps you going so yeah. if any issues with that it must be so petrified every time something happens yeah it's um I think I never really like thought about it to that extent I think um I think now more post-transplant I'm like fuck I've actually got someone else's heart inside my body like how the hell did that work <laughs> um but pre-transplant I think up until like the last six months I was very much optimistic quite like in my head I made I was like in a Disney film maybe I was like it's gonna be okay <laughs> it's gonna be okay um yeah and then it did get to that point where you know my doctor was giving me all these medications they were really affecting me they were really affecting like my energy levels like my blood pressure was like so low and he was giving this to me and then all of a sudden one would stop working and then I'd try another one and then that one would stop working yeah. and then he'd try another one and then that one would stop working and then it was literally like what do I do now like there's because almost like my consultant was a bit like a bit godlike to me because he was the one keeping me alive and yeah. not needing a transplant so whenever I was stuck or scared or like he would be the one that would make it better yeah so 
when it got to a point where it was like, I, I can't do any more, like, you need a transplant. I think that's when it got, like, serious and, like, oh, like, this is serious now. Yeah, 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 you've run out of books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your saviour's not there. Yeah, now. yeah. And he was, he was, he literally was like a god in my world because he was the one keeping me normal and alive. And like every time I saw him and he was like, yeah, everything's fine. It's like, great. And then when I was getting really ill, he was the one that like, no, I, he, he was the one I wanted to see. Like as soon as like, it was all fine when I was with him because he had the really calm nature, uh, you know, ca like consultants do. And like, they're the ones that know what's going on and they know what to do. Um, so yeah there was that dynamic as well um but i think you know it was at the point where i went for my heart transplant assessment which is a two-day assessment i don't know how long the liver one is um you know but you do your your cycling test you do your walking test you do your blood tests you do all the tests and then at the end of the two days um my one of the transplant uh consultants uh said to me um we believe you need a transplant because your heart can no longer support your body and at age like 20 that's like, that's like an awful thing to hear yeah, yeah. um and that that i think that's when it really like i don't know that's when it really hit me uh even in going into that assessment i was like oh they're definitely not going to put me up for a like transplant like look at me i'm young yeah. like i can i can walk i can i can do everything i mean i was really struggling but um they were like you know only like 30 percent of people who actually come for assessment get put on the list straight away so you know you're like it's not gonna be me like that's not gonna be me <laughs> and then it was and i was like oh no okay this has got real um, like you say, I mean, even when you, we're being ill as children and stuff, transplants is something you never really still come across. So, mm -hmm. uh, at a young age, so when you do get told at a young age, I mean, I was thirty something, and that's still, I was like, wow, it's young, mm. twenty to be told. Yeah. I think though, I don't know about you, but having, say, I, it's probably about eight, nine years of dealing with my health condition beforehand it's almost like I'd rather that had happened that way because I was prepared and I was strong enough to go for transplant um mentally and well not physically but you know <laughs> mentally because I knew how shit life was I I'd been through the worst I could be through um whereas like I've heard quite a lot of people like friends telling me about their friends who have all of a sudden had like a, a surprise heart bypass or like different things like that. And they're just so shocked and not sure what to do because they've been completely normal up until that point. Um, and I'm almost, I'm grateful that I was able to prepare and, you know, post transplant, I can now be really grateful and, you know, know where I've come from and just really appreciate life. Yeah. Um, I, same. I think all of my prep, from being ill at a younger age really helped when it came to the mm -hmm. transplant process. Mm -hmm. I, I was familiar with hospitals. I was familiar mm -hmm. with, you know, I was familiar with people coming and going at night. Yeah. 
uh, and to to be honest, like I almost feel a, uh, a sense of comfort. Uh, yeah. Because I just know I'm being looked after. You're uh, safe. You're yeah. safe in that environment. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really feel safe at home. Yeah. I don't know about you, but um. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that that free uh experience with hospitals and dealing with it all does it does help and i've spoken to a lot of liver transplant patients that have got into just sudden liver failure mm. never really had any issues and then all of a sudden they're facing a transplant which must yeah. be just like getting hit with a bat around the head like no their life has completely changed yeah, yeah they haven't yeah. even had like a warning even yeah, a year yeah. warning is better than none i'd say yeah, because like, you know, you kind of knew and I kind of knew, but even when I went for that meeting and they told me, I still had that minute of like that buzz and that silence. And then mm. being on the train home and just being like, OK, this is so real now. Mm. So then you got put on the list. How long was you on the list for? I was on the list. Um, November, January. Three months. Oh well, not too long then. But not obviously. too long. Um, so I so I went in for the assessment in July 2019. No, 2018. Yeah. I correct myself there. I so say July 2018, and then uh because of my lungs, they were then thinking, does she need a heart lung transplant or does she need a heart transplant? So then I had to get a, a bronch, a bronchoscopy done on my lungs because they were also worried because I had a bit of a, oh, I forgot what it's called. Um, it's like where a bit of your lungs just like permanently collapsed. Okay. Um, anyway, I had that. So then they weren't sure if that was going like, to make a difference. Um, so that was sorted out in October. And then we got the call at the end of October. And, you know, obviously you can't go uh, traveling once you're yeah. on the list. Yeah. So I decided to make my brother take me on a road trip through France and Spain, like literally a week before I was on the list. And it was so hard. It was so like painful at points, but I was just like, you know, if I'm gonna die soon, like I wanna have my last holiday. Um, and that, that car was like the extension of my body. Like I could hardly walk. Um, I did actually get in the sea and go surfing in um, in Hosica, um, and went and drank wine in uh, La Rio in Rioja, <laughs> um, and yeah, I I had a pretty good time. But then, like the the swelling in my stomach because the fluid like was going into my lungs, and I was just so painful all the time, so I could hardly walk. Um, but I was so glad I did that. That's a lovely yeah. thing for you and your brother to do. Yeah, and we were like, it was so, like major road trip vibes. Like we'd have the music on blasting. Um, we had like Avicii on like really loud. It was great. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was really great. And I, I'll always be thankful to my brother for doing that for me uh, because like, it's not really a thing my, my parents can do, um, but yeah, it was great. And I'd advise anyone on the transplant list to do so or before transplant. If you're pre-pre, I recommend. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so, so that happened, got on the list. And then um, I had three false alarms. Uh, it wasn't a great point. So October I was put on the list and 
I I was in hospital in November for two weeks at my local hospital because my heart was like just so bad. My uh, the doctors there just wouldn't even touch me because they were just scared of me. I think yeah. they just didn't want to touch me and like fuck me up basically. <laughs> um, so they waited for my like cardiologist to come down because he would come down like once a month. Um, so I was stuck there for two weeks and I came out and then in December I was really bad again really poorly so we took a trip up to Bristol um, and that's when my my cardiologist said there's nothing I can do Eliza you need to go and stay at Papworth till you get a heart so I stayed at Bristol for the night at the hospital and then the next morning we got a call from Papworth saying they had a match so then I was blue lighted up to, to Papworth in an ambulance um, and we got there it was like a really really long day I'm sure you've experienced this with a really like uh no food situation yeah, yeah. and yeah and it was like night like 10 o'clock at night and they were like no it's not happening and I was so hungry and all I cared about was having a Chinese takeaway I was just yeah. like <laughs> sorry every time I I'm like, right, I'm packed my bag, I'm gone. Exactly, exactly. So um I didn't care about the transplant by that point. I just wanted no. to do a week. Yeah. <laughs> so that was the first one. And then the second one was New Year's Day. Um, and you know, transplants are pretty like prominent on New Christmas Eve, yeah. Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, that kind of thing. So I was quite like on edge anyway, because I was like, mm, you know, this is normally quite a normal time for this to happen um I'd been in and out of A&E over Christmas and I was really not 100% at that point um and they weren't really getting what was wrong with me but anyway I'd come out of A&E I was really ill I was just throwing up all the time at home it was awful and then we get this call on New Year's Day um so I get blue lighted up again and then another false alarm um and then we come back down to to, to Cornwall and then I go to Amy again and it turns out I've got pneumonia <laughs> so oh, I'm like thank god I didn't have that transplant yeah. um, so then I then went back to hospital for another two weeks um, oh yeah I've got to say in December I was in hospital for another two weeks when I went to Papworth and they said there was no transplant but I stayed there for two weeks anyway and then in January uh, yeah <laughs> yeah um and then yeah and then went to any got stuck in hospital for another two weeks in january and then my transplant team were like you know what come up at the end of january and we'll check you out to see how you're doing obviously that was me thinking oh i'll just go for a checkup no no dramas just gonna stay ill and awful like this forever um, and I was thinking, you know, I'll go for this checkup and then I can go and have Wagamama's afterwards up in Bristol because my brother lives in Bristol. And that that was just in my head. It was almost, I don't know if you did this, but when you're like really ill, you just have like goals. So it could be a tiniest thing. So I'm going to get through this appointment and then I'm going to have Wagamama's and then everything's going to be okay. <laughs> Very orientated by the sounds of it, like me. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um, so went up to Papworth I remember really vividly like it was snowing it was freezing it was it was 
middle of January um, and we go in for this appointment and um, the doctor is basically like, so, you know, how are you doing? I was like, not great. And they're like, so we've looked at your stats and, you know, we think that maybe you'd be better off staying in hospital until you've had your transplant. Um, and that was just like a really hard thing to hear to yeah. them to actually identify that I needed to be in hospital um, because I was too ill. And they were like, you can stay in hospital or you can go back home. So it was almost worse having that like option. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously I want to go home. I yeah. don't want to stay here. Um, and my brother and my dad were in that appointment with me. And I just knew that my parents couldn't cope. Like they couldn't cope with how ill I was. They were trying their hardest. But like, you know, my closest hospital was 45 minutes from my house. Yeah. And, you know, if I'd had a heart issue, a heart something, like I probably wasn't going to make it. Yeah. So when the doctor said, like, you can stay here, I looked at my dad and, like, he's, like, his face just showed it all. He, he was just, like, I, so ba I basically went and lived in hospital for my parents. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can totally understand that how they would feel like that because they want the best for you. And yeah. And that was the best for you, obviously. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no parent ever wants to see their child in hospital, but mm. I guess stage where you know that's where you need to be i mean i've been in hospital for two weeks every every <laughs> month for the last three months anyway <laughs> um but yeah so i don't know why but i was like can i can i take a moment outside to think about it like why did i need to think about it i didn't but, I suppose as well because it's kind of like indefinite as well there's no end to it you know when are you going to get that transplant so they just say yeah. until then so you're like well yeah. that's the yeah right yeah it's like they were like you know we're gonna put you on a dopamine drip which means once you're on it we can't take you off it until you've had a transplant or you die basically um so yeah so i was put on a dopamine drip um which was really great i loved that drip it was <laughs> i had it was like the pole was like my boyfriend's it's dragging around yeah yeah i've been there i remember playing pool with mine like dragging it around this little pool table <laughs> that is uh creative yeah very creative um yeah so i was in there for four four weeks um they said it was going to be longer and interestingly enough at the start we uh you know like at the start in the assessment when you have to take like who you who you take an organ from so you know like someone that has taken drugs or smoked uh, someone that's uh, over 50 or 60 and then I think it's um, if someone's had a brain tumour and um, I said no to the brain tumour um, I don't know why I did but I don't remember doing this form do you I don't remember doing you it don't, you don't remember not that one no you're on your team <laughs> <laughs> were your team legit yeah not maybe it just come from back street <laughs> yeah so um i'm surprised you don't remember that no but anyway. bonds we do sign so i probably did do it it was just one of those things that went over my head you have to double check when you go back for your next appointment yeah. um 
Yeah, so I said no to receiving one from a from a person that's had it like a brain tumor. Um, I think there was like a, a percent or like a zero percent point, you know, chance of getting cancer from that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I said no. Um, and I was like, you know, I can always say yes further down the line. And then on like maybe the second day I was in hospital on my dopamine drip. Um, one of the uh, organ, not organ donation, uh, one of the transplant nurses or the, one of the coordinators came to me and was like, you know, you should really think about changing that decision and like ticking that. And I was like, yeah, sure. Okay, th thanks for that advice. And like I didn't. <laughs> And now thinking back, I'm like, why didn't I? But it's nice that you have these free will options of choice, though, really, because yeah. your choice at the time and, you know, you were happy with that. So that's good. Yeah. Um, it's just it's just like thinking back and you go, why did I do that? Like, <laughs> I guess, like, you know, in a different headspace, aren't you, in that situation? At the time, that was what you thought was right. And it, you yeah. Know, yeah. So yeah so um so yeah I was in there for four weeks um I met a really nice girl called Yasmin uh she came in the day after me and uh she I think she was she's a couple of years younger than me um and she was waiting for lungs um and we were opposite each other and we kind of looked like each other and everyone started getting us confused so like surgeons would like come to me and think I'm Yasmin and it was so funny <laughs> but she only like waited a day um so she went in she came in a day after me and then the day after that she got a call and she went in yeah so then I was like again alone for 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 four weeks um I had one false alarm in that time um and I was lit I was prepped to go I had been taken down to ICU so they could put like the neck the neck things did yeah. you have the neck things yeah yeah um and I was ready to go and then like at the last minute uh one of the one of the doctors came was like sorry your 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 surgeon doesn't think it's good enough for you yeah um I was that, I was expecting even when I was lying on the operating table I was still expecting that them to just say oh actually no it's not good enough oh jokes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not for you this time um but yeah it there were points where I was like is this ever gonna happen and there were also points where I was like you know what I'm just happy like in this bed on my dopamine drip hanging out with the nurses like you can you can leave me here <laughs> and it's like a comfort zone like you're in that comfort zone where you're like really ill but you're almost like kind of like happy where you are and you've got like content in this like little bubble you've got going yeah. and you know you've got the, the the socializing with the nurses you've got like the safety from the doctors you like I had my dad there by my side the whole month um and he'd bring me food every day it was like trolley dash like I'd give him a list of things to buy and then he'd like have to go and find them <laughs> um and yeah, it, it like in a way, it was quite enjoyable, although it was horrible at the same time. But you make it fun. You you find those tiny bits of joy in that trauma. Um, you become used to it, and if you constantly try and rebel it, then you're just gonna 
regret or not regret but hate every second of it like you say exactly i accept that it's happening and settle in exactly i think you know it's all about focusing on the little things like are you reading a book that you really enjoy or like i i i watched the whole like eight seasons of game of thrones whilst i was waiting for my transplant like i think that's a very good use of time definitely i've pretty binge watched that when i had covid one time i got so into it it's great isn't it um it is the little things like i would set a routine where i would wake up i would watch a game of thrones episode whilst waking up and then my transplant team would come for like morning you know checkups and then i would probably have someone come to like sort something out with something you know pharmacy or bloods or whatever then it'd be lunch and then i'd have a nap and then like i'd have a chat with my dad and then i'd like never watch another episode of game of thrones and then you know the medicine medicine will come around and like i got into such a routine and i think routine is such like a important thing when you're going through something like that whether you're at home waiting or in hospital like routine literally stops you from going mad yeah i was gonna say that because you're in hospital things are happening but if you're at home and there's not a lot happening then it's still mm-hmm. important to keep that routine just to yeah. go a little afternoon walk or a morning yeah. walk they say i mean you're more than work like have a nap in the afternoon i i, I love the nap especially pre-transplant uh, so don't feel guilty about having the naps, but just try to do things in between. Exactly, exactly. And um, I don't like I don't know about you, but when COVID happened, like, I absolutely thrived because I knew how to have a routine yeah. and like be stuck in a stuck in my room in my house because I'd been so used to it with transplant, waiting for a transplant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like it was almost like wait, being pre-transplant, but really healthy, so I could do stuff. Yeah, yeah, I felt the same because for you, when did you work? What was the date of your transplant? Um, it was end of February. Yeah, uh, two thousand and nineteen. Yeah, so you was the same time as me. So like after a year of that, then we kind of went into COVID. So oh god, like it was like end of that period of you know you've really got to look after yourself. Yeah, and then it's like freedom. Oh no, wait. Covid, yeah. we're gonna die. <laughs> yeah, yeah, petrified, stuck at home. Oh god, tell me about it. And now we just walk around with no masks. And... Yeah. What well, I do anyway. Probably. Yeah, I do now. Yeah, I take it you had all your jabs. I've had three of them. Yeah. Um, I need to get the fourth. Yeah. But is it funny when uh you chat with older people and they're like, oh, I've I've had my third jab. I'm like, so have I. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or, or, like some people that are younger, they've just only had like their first or second. And I'm like, I'm doing my <laughs> So I am extremely clinically vulnerable. It's quite actually, you're right with the older people as well. When I tell them I've had four, they're like, What? How have you managed to get Yeah. Out? It's like, Have you, how have you got through the queue? Yeah, yeah. Pushing in. It is quite funny. Yeah. <laughs> so then you. You know, had your transplant, and how has your recovery been? Hmm. Good question. Um. So, so the first year, um, I I was pretty pretty good. Um. Obviously, so because I've had my sternum cut open, there was quite a lot of pain. Uh. Because obviously, for 
like a few weeks I hadn't been able to like cough up stuff because of my lungs because I still have my lung issues um because my sternum had like been just closed shut very recently um coughing was so painful so my lungs weren't amazing but they weren't like awful um so I didn't really like you know fully push the exercise that took me quite a while to get into I think the first year I'd like do like normal walking nothing too strenuous just uh just pretty pretty tame I used to um kind of so I start off at one point and I could say okay so for the next few days I'm going to get to this point which was maybe like half a mile away yeah. and then I then set a new point and then I just kind of like keep going like building it up um so that's what I initially did in the first year to kind of build up my confidence with walking and I'd only normally go walking with someone else because I was quite um uh what's the word quite I felt maybe quite vulnerable yeah um you know I've gone from having a transplant and not being able to walk because my own muscles had wasted away to like you know being able to walk by myself yeah. <laughs> in the wild in the wild uh, yeah so um I think it was just all about building it up really um I'd always been big like a big gym person before my health got like bad so when like I was like 14 15 16 17 I was really like into the gym um so that was like a goal to get back into the gym and I think it was about a year after I started going back to the gym yeah. um it wasn't till like lockdown that I started to really like up the fitness um so in in lockdown I would do uh like a YouTube the couple YouTube workouts like religiously uh and then I do yoga and then when I started going for walks because for eight weeks I didn't even go for a walk like outside um so when I did go for that first walk outside it was like amazing and I I would do miles and miles of walking in lockdown and I think that was a really good way of um building up fitness yeah. um walking is so underrated um I, I would say exactly that same thing walking I was lucky that I was living out in the countryside and then after I started up well my sister years ago had a dog walking business and she still had yeah. a family. I took that over and just started doing dog walking yeah um, just to get a bit of extra cash and it was just such a good way of getting out and getting those steps in and building that strength back up 100% and like all the all the fat I'd put on from all my steroid induced eating I lost <laughs> um so Covid like was really good for me I think for that sense like I got really healthy um and lost quite a lot of weight and walking was just great and then in the first summer of COVID, uh, me and my mum got a personal trainer. So I started doing more like, um, you know, hardcore exercises, like jumping down and up and throwing balls around and all that stuff. Um, but that was quite difficult, having a personal trainer who completely did not get it. And then them like saying, OK, so you're going to throw, throw these really big heavy balls at each other towards your chest. Yeah. we're like i'm here like no stay <laughs> um and things like that and doing burpees and i'd be like look i can't really do those because my blood pressure is not like a hundred percent um so it kind of got to a point 
I was like, mm, unless I have a personal trainer who completely gets heart conditions and that kind of thing, like I don't think that's gonna work. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I was still very protective of myself and my body. Yeah. Um, so then I went back to the gym and just started doing my own thing. Yeah. And then winter, uh, like autumn, winter of 2020, I started doing the couch 5K. So I started running which I never thought I'd be able to do. Cause even though I had a transplant, my lungs still weren't like great. So I was like, oh, my lungs are not gonna be able to like do this. But actually since doing the running, my lung function has gone up like really like even higher, um, which is really good. Um, so I really do recommend the Couch, Couch 5K app. That's really good. Even if you just do the one week for like five months, like it's still better than nothing. <laughs> Yeah, everyone that I know has done it. <clears throat> I kind of did a similar thing, but I just used my local woods as like a, a mm. little bit to, to run around. But everyone that's used that couch to 5K said it's mm. really good. Yeah, it is really good. Um, yeah, so then that was that. Um, and ever since, I've just kind of been going to the gym. Um, how, how, so physically, you know, it took you like a year of just sort of yeah. easing in and stuff. How about mentally? mentally what do you mean mentally like how did you find it because for me I think my, my first year after transplant I was sort of focused on the physical side of recovery and then mm. you know, when I got back to full physical or you know back to a physical health that was reasonable the 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 whole process of everything that happened kind of went into my head and then mm. I started thinking more emotionally about it and things like that yeah um I think I had a really good experience of transplant and I know not everyone has that experience. I think actually going into hospital and being supportive so supported so much by the nurses and the doctors and the physio and they had like counsellors there. Um, and I am quite a resilient person. Like my, I think I get it from my dad. Like my dad's a very resilient person and I always try and see the positives and things. Yeah. So, although it was a traumatic experience, I think it was the least traumatic it could have been um, for someone that's going through a transplant. Yeah. Um, so, it's not, it hasn't really affected me mentally. I feel like other things in my life have affected me more than my transplant. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, maybe it's that more emotional things in my life are have affected me more and uh have traumatized me more than say uh transplant which maybe it's more physical and i deal with physical things like having my sternum broke open and my heart replaced isn't so traumatic for me whereas like um yeah emotional things where i'm in emo emotional turmoil affects me more um, and that's just how my my brain works like I I thought about this before and I'm like why am I not more like traumatized by this why why am I not affected by this and affected by other things that really like aren't that much like in comparison yeah. um if that makes sense yeah yeah um but I'm like so grateful that I don't have that or not affected by that trauma like that trauma is still trauma and you know I do get flashbacks I do like I guess I guess maybe that's not right saying it's not fully like it's not affecting me 
of I do get affected by um, people who are are in the transplant community and who are who have died. That really affects me, um, and that affects my mental health uh, because whenever that happens, I go into panic mode and I go, "God, am I next?" Like it just makes me realize I'm not superhuman and I I could just go like that. Um, and then the life expectancy that gets me. And I think I have a lot of issues around uh, wanting to speed up my life and get all the life goals, life events ticked off because I think I need to get them ticked off when I don't. But in my head, like society's like molded us to think, you know, we need to have a boyfriend. We need to get married. We need kids. We, we need a house. We, we need to go traveling and live our lives. And there's me like trying to work and juggle it all out. <laughs> um, yeah, so that is more what what affects me than than actually, you know, the transplant itself. Yeah. So the after effects, I think. Yeah, that's very like it sounds very takes it goes through certain things more than others. Mm. Yeah. So you you know now I know that you're uh, you run your podcast. I do. So that's Eliza Chat. Uh, sorry, Transplant <laughs> Chat, Eliza. Is that right? That's right. You were just you were saying your podcast name then. Danny Chat. So you were saying Eliza Chat. Yeah, Eliza. Not Eliza. Is it? It's Transplant Chats with Eliza. Transplant Chats with Eliza. Yeah. Transplant Chats with Eliza. I will put a link to a, uh, your podcast in the okay. video description below for anyone who wants to have a listen. But what can we find on there? Yeah, so um, you can find everything on there. Uh, so I've tried to make it as diverse um, as possible. Uh, so the first season was based on transplant patients, mostly post-transplant patients. Um, so lung, uh, heart, some liver, uh, I think there was a heart and lung, and then there's also an interview with a couple. So a, the guy, Will, uh, was needing a transplant and his wife was there being interviewed too, that he's now had a transplant, um, but it was about how they coped as a couple. And I think that was a really interesting one. Yeah, that's um, interesting because you don't often think of this you know we just think about ourselves but you don't think about what's put on as your, your, your partner and stuff. yeah partner slash carer yeah, yeah um so that was the first season and then the second season i managed to get a collaboration with uh my transplant hospital uh royal pat hospital so um i interviewed everyone from uh the dietitians the physio um the guy who created the DCD, well, that researched and got the DCD heart passed in law. Um, who else? Uh, uh, Mr. Woolwork, who is uh, the guy that did the first heart, lung, liver transplant. Um, just loads on that. It's all transplant based, more medical. Um, so that's more of an educational series. I think and that. that is really vital because I remember you know you go and sit and you have your appointments with the doctors and they might tell you one thing and while you're processing that they're telling you 10 other things <laughs> I don't even know what he said like so it's yeah down exactly. your own time and listen to it yeah yeah it's um 
it's a good way of processing things and like if you're the kind of person who um likes to know everything i think there's normally two kinds of people in transplant there's the people who don't want to know anything stick their head in the sand like uh what happens will happen that was me as well and then there's the other kind of person who wants to know everything every gory detail like anything they can know uh to make their transplant experiences like good as it can be um so yeah so that was the second season and then the third season i worked with nhs blood transplant so that was a shorter season um where i interviewed uh some transplant patients but also um some donor families which was a real honor um and i wanted to create that for so i created that for organ donation week last year but also i thought it'd be a great opportunity for uh some of the well the transplant community to be able to hear the donor side the donor family side of the story um and to kind of understand like why just saying thank you is enough because i think a lot of transplant patients don't think that is enough and then they just don't write and then they don't say thank you and i almost think that's worse than just saying thank you um i I think i'm stuck in that situation and every time that I've gone to write, I've got a letter in this like notepad here. Yeah. Right. I just get like it's too emotional. I just think, what do I write? How do I even say thank you? But I suppose it's just, just like you say, just just sending a note, a letter saying thank you is enough. The thing is, like you know, even if you send first letter and just say hi, like I'm Eliza, like thank you so much for allowing organ donation to happen, like in your fa- with your family member. And then that's not the last letter that you're going to have, like, that you can write. Like, you can write another one when you feel more, like, capable of doing so. And then you never know what response you might get. You might get a really lovely response, which will support you in writing a, a longer, more, like, you know, yeah. um, meaningful letter. But I think donor families deserve a thank you, whether that's two pages or, like, or one sentence. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think, yeah, it's nice to write to the family. And um, I have, I've never met a donor's family, but I've sort of researched stuff and spoke to people about the uh, transplant games, which mm. is um, athletics and sort of all different sports, I guess, but you probably know, but for anyone that doesn't, it's kind of like the Olympics for transplant patients. Yeah. Um, they have like a donor's run there as well, I think. And, yeah, um, they do. They do. I don't know too much about it. Yeah, I'm still in like 50-50 wherever I'm going, like, or I don't know. Are you going? I'm going to this year. Yeah, I've signed up. Nice. Yeah, I, I just um, just want to go and meet some people really and maybe mm. film in and chat to people and kind of just experience it all. Because the more I've spoke to people about it, it's like they've all just said, just come along. Like, even if you don't do any sport, just mm. come along because it's such a good experience. So, yeah, I think I'm definitely going to pop along. I, I should try to. It's just like being Cornwall. It's so far. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I should try. It's in Leeds this year, so it's like further up north. Oh. <laughs> I mean, anywhere is far away from here, so I should probably make I should probably make the effort. I mean, it would be really nice to meet like a bunch of people that are in our transplant community because I like it feels like I know half the people, but I yeah. don't. But it feels like I do because. <laughs> 
it's just it's constantly on my like my feed yeah because i've gone from a point of not knowing anyone that's had a transplant so if you look at my instagram it's like everyone in the world's had a transplant yeah it, like, i feel like i know more people that have had transplants than not yeah 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 <laughs> that point you yeah just, you just but and then it becomes very normal or not normal but i don't like the word normal but you know it becomes so in, around you that you forget that you're kind of like not rare but it, it isn't as common as what you think you know yeah yeah and i think you know that's really great that we don't feel uh rare and that we do feel like we're in a group and we're understood and i think that feeling understood is really important um and you know it's I wish that everyone that's had a transplant has the opportunity to feel like that and find this community, but obviously not everyone's gonna think, oh, there's there's a massive transplant community on Instagram. Yeah. Um, so I do think sometimes like, I wonder how we could get more people like on there because I don't know if you saw, I did a story a couple of, I think last week and just to like kind of see how, how many people like were pre-transplant, post-transplant or like pre-pre and most were posts. And I was like, oh no, like, where are all the pre that need to see, like, how great life is post? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know how your Facebook group is, but I'm in uh, other transplant groups and you, you're constantly seeing people join and be like, hey, this is all new to me, this is happening. Yeah. But, <laughs> but like you say, it's, it's finding these people on Instagram and, um, I mean, I think, you know, if people are searching the hashtags for transplant, they're going to come across your stuff, so. And yours. Yeah, hopefully. All, all of our transplant community stuff. <laughs> Pretty active, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. We like to tell people about it when it's happened. Yeah. I never, with, with all my other illnesses, I never really talked about it. I never said anything to anyone. I just take my tablets at home and I just get on with it. But with this, I feel... I don't know, I kind of opened up because I felt like I had to tell people what was happening and then since then I kind of just haven't shut up about it really. Yeah, it's almost like you have the floodgates closed and then once it opens, that's it. Yeah. And I think some of it as well is just feeling proud of myself and, you know, things that, that I've achieved since then. So it's just mm. nice to tell people about it. And It's not something to hide. I think, you know, well, for me, like when I was a teenager, it was something I had to hide. I, yeah. I just needed to be normal. Whereas now it's like, yeah, I've had a transplant and it's great. And you know, look how far I've come. Yeah. Um, and it's not something to hide. It's something to be proud of. Yeah. Yeah. I did actually have a message from someone in America. He was a professional mm -hmm. boxer. Uh, someone, you know, I wouldn't really think would sort of look at me and feel inspired, but he messaged me and he said, I wasn't going to tell anyone about my transplant or anything like that. But he said like, he just came out to all these boxing friends because he felt weak. And then he said, like, I came out to all my boxing friends and they were such a good support to me and such Aww. a good support. Wow. So, yeah, you know, I think to go through it alone and, and to not tell anyone would be really hard. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think it is really hard to want, if you're not used to being open, I think it is really hard. Like, I remember pre-transplant, I found it so hard to be open with even my friends and family about how I was doing. Um, and I almost put up a wall because that was my only control over the situation. Yeah. Um, and even like with some of my clients for coaching, like they're 
like so scared to share their story and they're like oh god I can't possibly do that and you're like no come on like you know give it a go you might like meet some people connect with some people and then once they start going they might absolutely love it (laughs) that's what I wanted to talk about next was your coaching because I think that is again this is such a vital thing for some people to to be able to access to be able to actually speak to someone that's been through the transplant process themselves and you know I don't know your full process of going through it but I'm sure just them talking to you really helps I think um I well I went through counseling uh before transplant I was just like so desperate just almost try and feel better about the situation but like anyone I talked to um like no one got it and you almost it just felt like you're being pitied because you're in such a dire situation um and I remember saying to my counsellor like I don't know this maybe two months before transplant I was like I just can't come to terms with the fact that the person whose organ I'm gonna have is like probably like walking around right now like totally oblivious to what's gonna happen to them and the counsellor was just like I I don't know what to say to that (laughs) I've never come across this in my professional career. Yeah. <laughs> I I had counselling after my operation mm. and speaking to him and he was just a bit the same, just like draw was dropped most of the time. Yeah. And it's like you don't want that. You want someone that completely gets it and like is bomb proof. And you can say anything to them and they're just like, Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And like normalise it. Even if it's embarrassing medical stories of stuff that's happened going through the transplant process. So you can just be like, well, this happened. I was so embarrassed. And then you're like, well, that happened to me. So don't even worry. I've got a story yeah. that's better than that. And then it just like puts people at ease. Exactly. So, and I think that's why, that's why like podcasts like yours and mine are so important for like, say people who maybe can't afford coaching or counseling or whatever, and they can still get that validation and that uh, common ground through the podcast, through yeah. listening. Yeah. Um, how can people get hold of you how can they get hold of me um they can get hold of me through instagram they can get hold of me from my email my email is eliza at transplantchats.com i mean they can try and get hold of me through my website which is transplantchats.com but i don't quite know if my website is linked up to my email um i'll have to double check that <laughs> Do you still run that? Oh, yeah, I still have a Facebook group. Um, it's called Young Female Transplanted, and that's for women between 18 and 36. Yeah. Um, so that's more of a group for young women who have probably like grown up with knowing they're going to need to transplant with health conditions. Uh, it's a safe space to talk about things like, you know, periods or hair loss or, you know, how people, how they look or like getting married or trying for a baby those kinds of things it's um it's a group for that basically yeah well i uh, i'm really aware that i've kept you for so long now eliza that's um, all right <laughs> i don't want to keep you all in then and i'm sure us two could probably chat for hours we'll have to do another podcast at some point yeah definitely um, but thank you so much for coming on. Um, hopefully anyone listening to this, you know, finds some helpful information. Uh, and like I say, I'll put a link to your uh, podcast below in the comments section, uh, in the information section of this video. So, yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you. I'll see you later. I'll let you get on with your evening.
Bye. Bye-bye.